Let's turn to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. We're going to finish the chapter today. So we'll read from verse 21 to 31. Verse 21. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants. One proceeds from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. But as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your amazing goodness and loving kindness towards us, that we, that we have come to know you and that we can gather in your name and hear your word. We pray that this morning as we take a look at this passage, Lord, I pray that you would Fill us all with your Holy Spirit afresh. Lord, that we would have joy as we think about this truth, that we are the children, like Isaac, of the promise and of the free woman. Help us to grasp what this means, Lord. Help us to grasp how amazing this is. Help us to be glad and realize what you've done for us. Take this text, Lord, and put it into our hearts and our minds. Lord, thank you for this time, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm sure that most of us have heard the expression alma mater. Have you heard of that expression before? Alma mater? It's a Latin phrase and it means nourishing mother. Nourishing mother. And we use it in reference to the college or the university that a, pers that a person attended. The place that you were educated. That's your alma mater. So if you attended a university and graduated there, you would say, my alma mater is, for example, Utah State University. That's where I was educated. And this phrase, alma mater, why do they apply it to universities? Because it conveys the idea that at this university, you were formed, you were molded, you became, you, you grew, and, and you are what you are because they shaped you. You came out of the womb of that university and 
Therefore, because you are molded by that particular university, you have taken on the characteristics of that school. Because some schools have distinctives. And so if you're from that school, then you, and if you say my alma mater is this school, then we all would say, oh, oh, I see. You were trained there. For example, if someone told me that they went to John MacArthur's master's seminary to study theology, just, that, just them telling me that would make me go, oh, okay, I know something about the way that you've been formed theologically. Versus if they were to tell me that they attended the very liberal Princeton Theological Seminary for their theology, and I'd say, oh, okay, so that's where you attended your theology. Gotcha. If someone in 1530 was to say, I, have, I studied at the University of Wittenberg, everyone would say, oh, okay, that hotbed of change, that place of radical reformation, that's where you, were, that's where you studied under Martin Luther, huh? Okay. And you'd get an idea of how that person was formed theologically, how that per person has been shaped. That's their nourishing mother, their alma mater. Our passage this morning is dealing with the subject of mothers, with alma maters, if you will. But what is said here in this passage is far more profound and determinative than anything that we might say about a university. Even though a university in some way forms you, what Paul is going to say here about mothers forms us in, so much, in a so much more profound and determinative way. But Paul raises the question, who is your mother? How were you formed? Where or by whom were you born? Universities are called mothers, but only because they bear the faintest parallel to, what, to real mothers. Because how many of you know that a real mother determines so much more about who a person is than just a university? We take from our real mothers our physical form, our genetic traits, our social status, etc. And what the Bible is telling us here in this passage is that even beyond universities and beyond physical mothers, the Bible says that we not only have physical mothers, but we have a spiritual mother as well. It might be shocking for us as Christians. I know personally as a Christian, and I know being around Christians a lot, we don't typically think about spiritual mother, do we? That's not something that we talk about or think about. And here it is in the text. The mother from which we are born and formed and gained our status. This is what Paul is talking about in this text. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Beginning in chapter 3, Paul had jumped into the heart of his letter where he's addressing the Galatians directly. He goes on the defense, defending the gospel against the false teachers, but he also goes on the offense, challenging the false views that the teachers are bringing to the Galatians and challenging the Galatians' foolishness. What were the Galatians doing? The Galatians who... Paul had taught, were now being taught something different. They were being taught by these men who claimed to be Christians, but who said that Paul was wrong when he taught you. Justification was through faith alone. You have to keep the law. You have to be circumcised. If you're going to be a child of Abraham and a child of God, there's way more to this thing than just faith. And Paul directs, uh, addresses them directly starting in chapter 3. Both chapter 3 and 4 is primarily doctrinal as Paul takes them to the scriptures and defends the gospel and attacks these false views. Although there are passages of personal appeal 
If you remember in chapter 3, verse 1 through 5 is a personal appeal to them. He's asking them, don't you remember your own experience? When did you receive the spirit of sonship? And then in chapter 4, we looked at verse 8 through 20 last week. And here's another personal appeal where Paul is reminding them of the blessedness that they shared together when he was first with them. And he says, what changed? Have I become your enemy because I told you the truth? But now in the end of chapter 4, in verse 21 to 31, Paul returns to Scripture, and he has another thing to teach them. Paul thinks of a final argument to give them before he moves on to the final appeal and practical section of the letter. This is Paul's final argument in Galatians, um, although we can be absolutely sure he had plenty more up his sleeve. The flow of the thought of Paul's thought here in this passage that we read is quite linear and plain. This passage is embedded with history, with allegory, and with personal application. And what we're going to do this morning is just go through this passage verse by verse and look at this linear plain uh, teaching that he gives, or this linear plain flow of thought, excuse me. And we're going to look at this teaching that he gives, which isn't really that uh, easy to understand. It's kind of technical. But we're going to look at that, which seems to be the best way of approaching it. Verse by verse here. So look at verse 21. Paul starts this way. Tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? So here we see in verse 21, we see clearly what the Galatians want to do. Now, what do the Galatians want to do? Do the Galatians want to rush headlong into debauchery? No. Is Paul writing this letter because he's like, wait, you Christians, you're saying that we're saved by grace now, and so we're just going to go out and sin up a storm and run headlong into debauchery. And so I need to write this really intense letter to stop you from that. No, that's not what's going on in Galatians at all. The Galatians don't want to run headlong into sin. They want to go under the law. Why do they want to go under the law? Because they're becoming convinced that this is the way to become righteous before God. This is the way to become acceptable before God. You know, for a lot of people in this world, they would think the Galatians are doing an awesome thing. They'd be saying, it's so great that you're so, you know, concerned about the things of God and you're so passionate about God and wanting to be right with him and getting your life in order and keeping the commandments. That is wonderful. And yet here we find in the, in the New Testament the most intense letter of Paul, of all the letters in the New Testament, the most urgent, the most blistering hot uh, letter. And what do they want to do? Wow, what, are, what, are, what bad thing are these guys doing that would bring forth a rebuke like this? Well, they want to go under the law. <laughs> really? Yes. And you know, it's often been said, but when you compare this letter to 1 Corinthians, there's a great difference. In 1 Corinthians, you have a group of Christians that are running headlong into debauchery, if you will. And Paul doesn't write a letter that blistering. I mean, he corrects them. He says, this is wrong. But he never rebukes them so sharply like he does here. Because with this issue, everything is at stake. It's wrong for us as Christians to sin. And if you see me sinning, please come and rebuke me. And if I see you sinning, I may come and rebuke you too. But what we 
know is that as Christians, our sins are forgiven. Our sins don't separate us from God anymore because of our faith in Christ, because of what Christ has done for us. But if we depart from the, the grace of God and if we depart from the gospel, if we lose our faith in righteousness through faith, then we have no hope. Then we've turned from darkness to light, uh, from light to darkness, excuse me. Then we've abandoned God. And so this is why this letter is so intense, because here's what they're doing. And Paul's kind of rough here in verse 1. Do you notice that? I mean, maybe you could interpret this in a different way, but I don't know. If you write this, tell me, you who want to be under the law. He addresses them in the second person like that. You who want to be under the law, tell me. Don't you hear what the law says? He's rough with them a little bit because he's urgent and it's so serious what they're doing. It's kind of like they're about to step off a cliff. Hey, don't do that. Don't you hear the law, Paul says. Now, when we think of the law, we might just think of all these commandments. But in Judaism, the word law can be used for just the commandments. It could also be used for the five books of Moses. If you use the law, it could refer to that. It could also refer to all of the scriptures. Paul here uses the law referring to the scriptures, for he takes us to the story of Abraham. But notice again what he says. You want to be under the law, do you not hear it? That's part of their problem. They're not really listening to the scriptures. They're not hearing what God has said. Everything truly depends upon your hearing of the word of God. If you, brothers and sisters, or if we as people stop hearing the word of God or don't hear the word of God, there isn't any hope for us. So make it a priority in your life. Hear the word of God. Listen to what God is saying. Learn from him. God has given us the scriptures to learn. They will not benefit us if we do not hear what they are saying. This is the Galatians' problem. They're not listening and hearing. Verse 22. Paul takes us to Genesis, to the story of Abraham and his two sons. And we know who those two sons are. Isaac and Ishmael. And essentially what Paul is saying here is, so you want to be Abraham's sons, huh? That's what this is all about. You want to be Abraham's children. You want to be a part of the family. Don't you remember that he had two sons? Two very different kinds of sons. What kind of son do you want to be? It's not enough to just say you want to be the children of Abraham. But what kind of son? Because he had two. Now it's true that Abraham had more than two sons. But if you read the book of Genesis, Isaac and Ishmael are the sons that the scriptures focus on, and those are the two contenders for the inheritance. And so uh, Isaac and Ishmael, and this issue is what Paul looks at, because this is what it's all about. Who's going to be the inheritor of Abraham's blessing? Notice also in verse 22 and 23, that Paul does not introduce the sons by their names. He doesn't use their names here. He doesn't say Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. He introduces them by their status. And that's a very important point because this is what this section is all about. The status of the two sons. It, it, their names are not so important. But what kind of sons did he have? One was born from a bondwoman 
he says in verse 22, and one was born from a free woman. That made the difference in the story of the book of Genesis. Whether the child was born from the bondwoman or whether the child was born from the free woman. And the book of Genesis calls Hagar, Ishmael's mother, a slave. She was a bondwoman. She was a servant to Sarah. And that's the status of Ishmael. Therefore, he was born from a bondwoman. He was the son of a bondwoman. Now look at verse 23. Paul has more to say about their status. There's more, for it starts with the word but. The word but adds to what he's just said. So he said one was born of the bondwoman, one was born of the free woman, but in verse 23 there's more I can say. Not only are there two different kinds of mothers, two different kinds of women, but they were each born in different ways as well. So it's not just that the mothers were different, but they were born in the same way. The mothers were different and they were born in a different way as well. How was Isaac born? Yes, he was born of Sarah, but the, Bi the Bible teaches us that Isaac was born as a result of God's promise and by God's own power fulfilling his promise to Abraham and to Sarah. His birth was a supernatural birth. His birth was something miraculous. His birth was based upon God's direct intervention. God said, at this time, I will come next year and Sarah will have a son. And Abraham and Sarah both thought that was pretty funny because they couldn't have kids, right? They were physically unable to have children. But God promises it and says, I'm coming at this time next year and, I'm going, and you guys will bear. Miracle and promise. But not so with Ishmael. Ishmael was born not on account of the promise. Now, true, Abraham had received an original promise that he would have a great nation come out of him. But God never said, at this time next year, Hagar is going to bear a son. Or Abraham, he didn't tell him to go to Hagar and have a son. The reason why Abraham and Sarah went to Hagar to have a son is because they were thinking to themselves, okay, we're supposed to have sons here, but we don't have any. And we're not going to have any. And so we need to do what the only thing we're able to do, which is to go to Hagar. And so Ishmael was not born on account of any special intervention by God, not born on account of any promise, and not born on account of supernatural means. He was born based upon human power, human wisdom, human effort, human ability, natural ability. Nothing supernatural about it. That's what it means here in verse 23 when it says that the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. And you'll remember we talked about the word flesh and it means you're born according not to God's power but to our own power. But on the other hand, the son by the free woman was born through the promise. So we have two very different sons of Abraham, born of two different mothers and in two different ways. You guys want to be the children of Abraham? Don't you remember he had two sons? Which one do you want to be? Which one are you? Now thus far, nothing that Paul has said is new to the Galatians. They would have been aware of this. He's really just reminding them of what they already know. Don't you know this? Don't you remember this? But then Paul, in verse 24, makes a crucial shift, something that's new. And he 
tells the Galatian readers something new. He shifts from the mere history of Genesis to allegory. He shifts from history to allegory. And he says in verse 24, this is allegorically speaking. I'd like to say two things about Paul's use of allegory here. First of all, when Paul uses allegory, he's not using it like some others in his day and many people since have used allegory when they interpret scripture. Have you ever heard of a man named Philo? Philo was a Jew in Paul's day. He was a contemporary of Paul. And Philo's famous because he wrote commentaries on the Old Testament scripture as well. But Philo was famous for allegorizing scripture. Philo would go to the Old Testament and he would allegorize. And he would say, this represents this and this represents this. And this story actually means this and it's teaching a lesson about this. And Philo did that actually uh, when he allegorized. He basically said, this history isn't actually real history. It's just mythology that's teaching us lessons and they're allegories and just allegories that's all they're parables they're stories to teach us they're not real history origin the christian commentator did similar things as well he would allegorize and spiritualize scripture to the detriment of the actual history this is not what paul's doing even though paul uses allegory he's in no way saying this is not history and this never happened. He's saying this did happen. This is history, but we can learn a lesson from it because the history tells us something about God. God intended things to happen this way to teach us. They happened as lessons for us. So he's not in any way omitting the real history or dismissing the real history. The other thing about Paul's use of allegory here is that Paul has already used allegory in the book of Galatians. I argued in chapter 3, verse 16, that Paul uses a midrash or an allegory. And if you want to go back there, I'd like to point out two things. First of all, uh, we can see the similarity between this passage and the one in chapter 4. For Paul says at the end of verse 16, that is Christ. I argued when we read ver this verse that what Paul says in verse 16 is this, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed. And what I argue in this verse is that Paul is talking about how God's promise wasn't given to all of Abraham's sons. That is, it wasn't given to Ishmael and Isaac and to the other sons, but only to one of his sons, and that was Isaac. But then in the last three words of this verse, we have an allegory where he says, and this is Christ. Isaac is Christ. The phrase in the Greek, this is Christ, is identical to the phrases in chapter 4 where Paul says, this is Hagar. So he tells the history and then he says, and this is an allegory. It's, it's, uh, this is the two covenants. This is Mount Sinai. This is Hagar. So he uses identical phrases. The other interesting thing about verse 16 in chapter 3 and this section is chapter 4 is that the subject matter is very similar. So in chapter 3, 16, he's saying the promise was given to not all of Abraham's sons, but just to one, Isaac. And so in chapter 4, 
Paul returns to this theme again to talk about the many sons of Abraham or the two sons of Abraham. And you want to be a child of Abraham, that's great. But remember, he had many sons or two sons, but only one of them was a son of promise and an inheritor of the blessing. And so you need to ask, what is it about Isaac that was different? Now let's go back to chapter 4, verse 24. He says, this is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, Hagar and Sarah. These women are two covenants. One proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. What we see here is that these women represent two covenants. First, Hagar, Paul clearly states, represents the covenant at Mount Sinai, which we often call the Sinaitic covenant. It's the covenant of the law. The covenant of the law. Now, the other woman is Sarah. He doesn't name her. What covenant does she represent? Does Paul say? What's interesting is, notice Paul actually doesn't say what covenant Sarah represents. And this is a helpful thing to notice about the scriptures. Paul says, these women are two covenants. One, Hagar represents Mount Sinai. <laughs> and the other, Paul, <laughs> he doesn't say. <laughs> and the Bible often is like that. It is written in such a way that you have to fill in the blanks. You have to be thoughtful about it. It doesn't always, as I often say, take you by the hand and, and tell you everything in black and white and just what you need to know. When you read the Bible, brothers and sisters, you have to read thoughtfully and realize that the, the apostles write, even the prophets, they write um, assuming that you can follow what they're saying and that they don't have to fill in all the blanks. So there is, in some sense, uh, there is in a way... Or it can be said in some sense that the apostles are not writing primary textbooks to kind of take you from the ground up. They're writing to people assuming they already have some kind of an understanding, which tells us if you really want to understand the Bible, you need to learn. You need to learn context. You need to learn your primary stuff so you can follow what's being said. There's a lot of thinking that goes into Bible study. He doesn't say what covenant Sarah represents, but we can fill in the blanks simply. And we can say this, and I'll explain why. That if Hagar represents the covenant at Mount Sinai in the law, then Sarah, or the woman that is the free woman, represents the new covenant in Christ's blood. The new covenant in Christ's blood. And why is this? Because both covenants and both women are methods or ways of fulfilling the promise that God gave to Abraham. The women are ways in which the promise is fulfilled. The promise is, Abraham, there's going to be a great nation made out of you or com coming from you. How is that going to happen? Is that promise going to happen and be fulfilled through Sarah or is it going to be fulfilled through Hagar? And that's the question of the covenants as well. Is the blessing promised to Abraham going to come through the law or is it going to come 
through faith in Jesus Christ, which is what the new covenant is all about. The new covenant is about God's work, which is Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. The new covenant is about God's grace. The new covenant is not about our flesh and our producing and our performing, but the law is. And the question that this book of Galatians is all about is, what is the method or the way in which we are blessed? Is it through the law or is it through faith in Christ? And so these covenants represent the Sinaitic covenant and the new covenant, both ways or methods to be blessed. One, of course, works and one doesn't. This text also says that both covenants bear children. Notice in verse 24 that Mount Sinai, uh, one proceeds from Mount Sinai bearing children who are slaves. And so there's, a, there's, there's this idea that these covenants bear children. How is it that a covenant can bear children? Well, this allegory shouldn't be pressed too hard. What that essentially means is, is that both covenants have people who are of them. Both covenants have people who are of them or who belong to them. Turn with me to chapter 3 again and look at verse 9. And Paul actually uses this kind of language in verse 9 and 10. In verse 9 he says, those who are of faith, so he doesn't just say those who believe, but those who belong to the way of faith or the new covenant are blessed with Abraham the believer. So there are those who are of faith, but look at verse 10. As many as are, he doesn't just say trying to keep the law, he could, but he says, as many as are of the works of the law, as many as belong to that way of trying to be blessed, they're cursed. If you're of faith, you're blessed. If you're of the new covenant, you're blessed. If you're of the law, you're cursed. Both of these covenants have people who are of them, who belong to them. Both of these covenants create sons Sons who are either slaves or sons who are free. If you are of the law, you are a slave. And we've looked at that in detail already in the book of Galatians, how the law brings about slavery and bondage. If you're of faith, we've looked at that also, that you're free. In verse 25 of chapter 4, look at that with me. Paul focuses on Hagar. This is his primary focus because this is where the people are wanting to turn. They're wanting to turn to the law as a way of righteousness. And so he highlights the law as a way of righteousness. Hagar represents Mount Sinai due to several interesting parallels or several interesting connections between them. First of all, the law is a covenant of bondage that begets bondage, we've already learned in the book of Galatians. The law is a covenant of bondage that begets bondage. What do we mean by that? You're in bondage to the law because you are in bondage to the necessity of obeying it. Friends, if you are of the way of the law, if you are trying to be righteous before God and the way for you to be blessed is by obedience to the commandments, you have a major problem. And that major problem is that you have to obey those commandments. You are of necessity to do everything that the law says. If you want to go down that path, 
You have to go down that path and do everything that the law commands. It's not just about becoming a better person. It's not just about trying a little bit harder. It's not about becoming better than the next person. It's about doing what the law requires, and you're of necessity to do that. You're under the necessity to do that. That's bondage. You can never say, I don't want to do it anymore. I only want to do some of it. You have to do it all. And because you're of necessity to do it all, you're under another bondage. You're under the bondage of condemnation because nobody obeys the commandments. And so you're under God's wrath and there's nothing that you can do about it. There's nothing that you can perform or work that will change the fact that one, you have to keep the commandments and two, you don't. And so you're condemned and you're under a curse. So the law is a covenant of bondage and begets bondage. The Apostle Paul thought of the law as bondage. And so it's not surprising that when he read the book of Genesis and he thought about it, and as we're going to see, he could think about it this way because in the prophets, in verse 27, in, in uh, verse 27, Paul quotes Isaiah, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But there's a connection between that story in the book of Genesis and this greater uh, prophetic theme of the barren woman. And as Paul's thinking about this story in the book of Genesis and thinking about how the law is a covenant of bondage that produces slaves, he sees, hey, Hagar was a slave. Here's an interesting parallel between them. Just as the law was a covenant of bondage that begets bondage, so Hagar was a slave who begets other slaves. When slaves have children, those children are slaves as well. Another interesting parallel between the law and Hagar is that with the law, you cannot rely upon God or anyone else to do it for you. The law is not of faith, the Bible tells us. The law is not about you trusting in anybody. The law is about you doing what it tells you to do. The fingers of the law are pointed at you, and it makes its demands upon you. The law is all about the man who does it will live. No one helps you do it. You can't trust anyone to help you. The law, Paul sees, is of the flesh because it's all about your own performance and your own effort to obey. And there's an interesting parallel again with Hagar because the means of her birth was natural again and not supernatural. No one was trusting in God. No one was uh, waiting for a miracle. They were saying, well, what can we do? Here's all we can do. We got to do it. Ishmael was born according to the flesh, and so is, are all those who seek to be righteous by the law, seeking to be righteous according to their own works and according to the flesh. Another interesting parallel. And one last, last interesting parallel is that Paul knew that the law, not only was it bondage and not only was it a matter of your own effort, but that the law could not produce life. It would not ever work. It could only produce death. And here he says that Mount Sinai is in Arabia. And I don't think it's a coincidence that when God brought the people of Israel out of Egypt and when he went to go give them the law of Moses and the covenant at Mount Sinai, he took them to the most nasty, barren wasteland you could possibly imagine to give them the law. The Arabian desert is a vivid picture of death and, nothing, and, have, and no life. And this is the context of the giving of the law. It's in Arabia, 
out of that land of promise and milk and honey into the land where the only way you're going to drink and the only way you're going to eat is if God does miracles. That's where the law was given. It's also interesting, if you remember in the book of Genesis, when Hagar and Ishmael are kicked out of Abraham's tents, where did they go to live? They went to go live in Arabia. So Paul sees a connection here. There's all these parallels that Hagar belongs to, she, she is Mount Sinai in Arabia, which is about bondage, which is about human effort, and which is about death. But if that's not shocking enough, Paul does something even more shocking in verse 25. So already he's introduced them to something new. This is an allegory, guys, and it's about the law. He does something shocking. He does something further shocking because he then tells them that Jerusalem and the Jews who do not believe in Christ are in the category with Hagar and Ishmael. He basically says, Jerusalem and the Jews, they are with Hagar and Ishmael. They are Ishmaelites. And the reader would say, what? You're putting Jerusalem and the Jews with Hagar and, and Ishmael, not with Isaac? Now, it's important to see, first of all, that Paul is not saying Jerusalem is Hagar. Jerusalem is the Old Covenant. But he says that the present Jerusalem is in the category with them. If you look at the Greek text, the Greek word for, in my Bible it says, that Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia that corresponds to the present Jerusalem. And the word in the Greek for corresponding is a word that means marching together with or aligned with. And so what he's saying is that the Old Covenant is aligned with the present Jerusalem. They're marching in step together. Jerusalem and the Jews are marching in step with the Old Covenant. Because Jerusalem aligned itself, not with Christ, but with the Old Covenant. When Jesus came, they rejected him. And Jesus wept over Jerusalem. And he said, Jerusalem, how, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you wouldn't. You've rejected me, O Jerusalem. You've not sided with faith. You've not sided with truth. You've not sided with righteousness. You've sided with lies. You've sided with human effort. You've sided with the old covenant that does not work. And he wept over them. And because they had aligned themselves with the old covenant and with the law, they were spiritual Ishmaelites, they were children of the flesh. They were slaves. That's what he's saying to them. And he's saying to the Galatians, you know, the people and the city that you admire so much and want to be a part of and want to be like, the guys that you think aren't Ishmaelites and the guys who are telling you that you are Ishmaelites and you need to change and become like them, yeah, those guys are actually the Ishmaelites. Those are the ones who are actually not the inheritors of the promised blessing because they don't have faith, because they are like Ishmael, children of the bondwoman, born of the flesh. This is a shocking thing because 
the Galatians were wowed by Jerusalem and the Jews. Wow, we want to be like them. We're Gentiles. We're outsiders. We're not a part of the family. We want to get in. And he's saying, no, they're actually out because they have aligned themselves with the old covenant and not with the new covenant. You notice here in verse 25 that Jerusalem stands here as, stands as a mother. Jerusalem is in slave, slavery with her children, Paul says. That is, there are people who are of her, of Jerusalem, that belong to her and that she creates. But because Jerusalem aligns herself with the old covenant, her motherhood and the motherhood of the old covenant merge the, covenant, the old covenant is then facilitated through Jerusalem. And those who are of Jerusalem and who follow Jerusalem, the present Jerusalem, are the children of the flesh. So Paul asked the question, who is your mother, Jerusalem? Well, what is she like? Tell me about your mother. Is she free or is she a slave? Who has she aligned herself with? Has she aligned herself with God's covenant at Sinai or with God's covenant in Christ? I, I don't know if you're aware of this, but Jerusalem is the most important city in Judaism and in the Bible. Jerusalem, it can also be said, is the most important city in the world. The city of Jerusalem is the city that God chose out of all the cities of Israel. He chose the spot upon which he told Abraham to go and sacrifice Isaac on Mount Moriah. The city of Jerusalem is the city of David, the king, and of David's throne. It's the city of Israel's leadership. It's the city that God chose to build the temple in and to have his presence there and to have the high priest and the priesthood there. It's the religious and political center of Israel. The city of Jerusalem is the place of worship and prayer for all nations. The city that, of Jerusalem is the city that God laments over all throughout the prophets and judges in history. The city of Jerusalem is the city that Jesus came to, that Jesus died in, was buried, rose, and where Jesus will again return. The city epitomizes and defines the people of Israel, their hopes, their fears, their righteousness, their pursuit of righteousness. Israel's stand in this world is bound up with Jerusalem. And we can rightly say that as goes Jerusalem, so goes Israel. And because Jerusalem aligned itself, her leaders, her religious leaders, her political leaders, aligned itself not with Christ, Jerusalem and those who are of her are enslaved. But I'd like you to notice in verse 25 that Paul says, he doesn't just simply say Jerusalem, but he says the present Jerusalem. He puts a temporal limit on what he's saying because Paul believed with the prophets that the situation in Jerusalem would not be that way forever because Jerusalem can change who she aligns herself with. The present Jerusalem is aligned with the Old Covenant. But that situation can and will change. Notice verse, please look at verse 26. Paul contrasts the present Jerusalem with the Jerusalem that is above. This is kind of odd stuff for us as Christians. You know, this talk about Jerusalem, I think that we don't really, it doesn't really resonate much with us at all. If we were Jews, I think this would resonate with us an awful lot. 
But for us, it doesn't really resonate with us. But Paul here is pretty excited about this idea that the Jerusalem above is free. I mean, doesn't that get you excited? <laughs> if, you were to, if you were to go tell that to Christians, the Jerusalem above is free. I think Christians would be like, whatever. <laughs> I don't know what you're smoking, right? <laughs> and she's the mother of us all. It just goes over our heads, doesn't it? It doesn't really make any sense. But it made a lot of sense to Paul. What is Paul saying here when he says the Jerusalem above is free? If we're going to understand Paul, and by the way, the New Testament talks about the Jerusalem above in other places as well. It's not just here. You can probably think of several other places where it talks about the heavenly Jerusalem. That's the Jerusalem above. Or also it's called the New Jerusalem. If we're going to understand this, it's necessary to understand that the concept of the Jerusalem above is not original to the New Testament. So Paul here isn't introducing a brand new concept. He's not saying, you know, there's a, new, there's a Jerusalem above. None of the Jews know about this. But there's a Jerusalem above. Mormons call it Missouri. Mormons call it Missouri. <laughs> Do they say it's Jerusalem above? They say it's the, new Jerusalem. the New Jerusalem. Okay. This is not a concept that's original to Christianity or to the New Testament. This is a concept that the Jews themselves were familiar with. It's a concept that's found in the Old Testament. It's actually a concept that's found all over uh, Jewish writings that are not in scripture, Jewish writings before the New Testament was ever written, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, you can hear the Jews talking about the New Jerusalem. In fact, there's a Dead Sea Scroll that's entitled the New Jerusalem. They talk about the heavenly Jerusalem. And here's what this is. It's actually not that complicated. It sounds kind of complicated, but it's not. Basically, the Jerusalem that is now, the present Jerusalem that everybody sees and hears about, is less than ideal, isn't it? It's less than ideal. Everyone knows, and every Jew would know, that the situation in Jerusalem right now is not ideal. It's not the situation that the prophets talk about. It's not the situation that, that we know is going to happen, is going to come one day. It's not the situation where righteousness is reigning and peace is reigning and blessingness is reigning. It's, it's actually quite less than ideal. And that's the Jerusalem that is now. The Jerusalem that is above, on the other hand, is simply the ideal Jerusalem. The Jerusalem as it should be. It's that idea of Jerusalem as it should be. The Hebrews have a phrase for this. Yerushalayim shel matah is the Jerusalem that is below, and Yerushalayim shel malah is the Jerusalem that is above. This is common Jewish language. And I think we Christians don't use language like this, but they are using language like this. And the New Testament uses language like this. It's not Missouri. It's not Missouri. The Jerusalem that is below is the Jerusalem that is right now. But the Jerusalem that is above is the Jerusalem that one day will be and what it shall be. 
it's not talking about two separate things. It's talking about Jerusalem as it is now and Jerusalem as it will be. It's not like, forget about the earthly below Jerusalem. It doesn't matter anymore. There's a heavenly Jerusalem. It's not that. But the Jerusalem that is now isn't ideal. There's coming a time when it will be ideal. And the Jews believed that this ideal Jerusalem is before God. You could even say it's in the heavens right now already before God, just waiting to come. For God promises in the Old Testament to redeem and to beautify Jerusalem, doesn't he? He promises to redeem it. In fact, if you've ever noticed in the book of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah has a, a major theme that runs throughout it, and that major theme is the redemption and beautification of Jerusalem. And Isaiah, God is complaining, saying, Jerusalem, is, it's full of harlots and it's unrighteous and it's going to be cursed, but I'm going to bless and redeem it and beautify it one day. And so the prophets promise the redemption of Zion and the redemption of Jerusalem. Now it's a harlot at the present time, but then it will be righteous, a beautiful bride for God. And God not only promises things are going to change, in the Old Testament, he even describes what the Jerusalem in the future is going to be like. And I'm not going to take us to those places, but they're found in Isaiah. One of the most famous places is found in Ezekiel, where God describes not only that he's going to do it, but what it's going to be like. And so the Jews said, God isn't just going to fix Jerusalem. He already knows what it's going to be like. It's already in his heart and in his mind, the heavenly Jerusalem. It exists in God. You know, the New Testament talks about this, doesn't it? The heavenly Jerusalem comes down out of heaven. The New Testament talks about similar things to this as well. Do you remember in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, if our earthly tabernacle dissolves, and he's talking about our bodies, we have, what does he say? a heavenly tabernacle in the heavens that's waiting for us. So even our bodies, God knows what that's going to be like. It's reserved, waiting for us in heaven. There's a heavenly body that's going to replace our earthly one. And what Paul is doing here is he's taking a common idea in Judaism, the Jerusalem below and the Jerusalem above, He's not creating a new idea, but he's taking the old idea and he's saying this, the Jerusalem below is aligned with the old covenant and the Jerusalem above, the ideal Jerusalem, the one everyone's waiting for, the, the Jerusalem of blessing and perfection, it is what it is because it's aligned with the new covenant, because it's aligned with Christ, because it has believed. It and its children are children not of the flesh, but of the Spirit and of the promise. In Hebrews 13, verse 14, the author of Hebrews tells us that we Christians are like Abraham, still waiting for the city to come. Doesn't he say that? Hebrews 13, 14. We Christians, just like Abraham is looking for a city, we also are looking for a city. And what kind of city are we looking for? We're looking for the city that's built by God. Not the city that's a product of human effort and human doing, but the city that is the product of God's work, which is his work 
in Christ. However, the book of Hebrews also tells us in chapter 12 that we Christians are not only waiting for the heavenly Jerusalem, but we have come to it already. We haven't actually, he says, come to the Mount Sinai, but we have come to the heavenly Jerusalem and we are of it and we belong to it and we are its children. Yes, it hasn't been manifested yet, but we nonetheless belong to the ideal Jerusalem that has aligned itself with Christ. And we are her children, and therefore we are free. Brothers and sisters, if you are of the new Jerusalem, you are of the blessing. You are of no necessity to keep the law and all of the commandments of God which would condemn you. You are of the new Jerusalem, and you are of the blessing, and you are of no condemnation, not because of anything that you have done, but through faith in Jesus Christ alone. You look at this messed up world, and you can say, I don't belong to this messed up world. This world has fallen in in sin. I don't belong to this messed up age. I belong to the age to come. That's what Galatians chapter 1 says, that Christ has delivered us from the present evil age. We don't belong to the present age, and we don't belong to the present Jerusalem that has aligned itself against Christ we belong to the Jerusalem above that's to come and the age that's to come. The age of blessing because of Christ and righteousness through him alone. It's an amazing, staggering thing. It should excite us, brothers and sisters, that Jerusalem above is free, meaning there is the blessing. It exists and it's based upon Christ and we belong to it. We are her children. Now let's just briefly look at 27 and 28, where Paul takes us to the book of Isaiah. Scholars are basically unanimously agreed that these two women are basically, uh, these two women are the Jerusalem that is present and the Jerusalem that is to come. The Jerusalem that is below and the Jerusalem that is above. The Jerusalem that's aligned with the new covenant and the Jerusalem that's aligned with the law. And it's an odd thing because we might say, well, aren't there more non-Christians than Christians? How can we say that the, our mother Jerusalem above has more children than the Jerusalem below? I mean, it kind of seems like there's fewer Christians than there are non-Christians. But I think that the way we should understand this is this. It's not that there's more people who are Christians than there aren't Christians, but there's more righteous people through faith than there are righteous people through the law. In fact, how many righteous people are there through the law? None. Even though almost everybody goes after the way of the law, there's no righteous people through the law. But the children of the Jerusalem above, the Bible tells us, are more, they're so numerous you can't even count them. Innumerable versus zero. And we Christians are like Isaac, verse 28 says, a laughing matter. The word Isaac means laugh, laughter. Isaac was a laughing matter. It's a funny womb that he was born in, wasn't it? You come from a barren, dead womb, born from a woman who's about 100 years old, born by the power of God and not by any human effort. That's kind of funny. It's a laughing matter. And so are we Christians also a laughing matter. We come from a funny womb as well. We come from the womb of the New, Testament, of the New Covenant. 
I am totally righteous before God, not because of anything that I have done. All of my works are, are barren and produce nothing but death. And here I am, an inheritor of the blessing of God and eternal life. Why? Because of this amazingly strange thing that God has done for me in Christ. Sending Jesus to die for my sins, taking my place, and giving me a righteousness that doesn't even belong to me. You know, we should think about us Christians and we should think how funny it is that we're righteous. It's, it's really bizarre. We are like Isaac, a laughing matter. But there is a good laughing, the laughing of joy, which we should all have as Christians. We should every, every morning get up and chuckle for joy that we, sinful we, are saved. But there's also a bad laughing. It's the laughing of scorn. In verse 29, it says, But as at this time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now. And you'll remember this persecution that Paul says happened in the past and which currently happens now. You'll, You'll remember in the book of Genesis that Ishmael didn't beat Isaac's face in, right? Ishmael didn't kill Isaac. Ishmael didn't punch him. But Ishmael simply laughed at him. He laughed at him to scorn. And this persecution can even take the form of laughter and ridicule and scorn, not merely violence. But people, when they laugh at us and say, you're so stupid for thinking that you can just believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. That's ridiculous. And you're so ridiculous to think that everything that I have done in my life doesn't count for anything. Everything that I have built up All the good deeds that I've done, all the service that I've done, all the money that I've paid, you're telling me that it amounts to nothing? That's ridiculous. They laugh at the truth to scorn. Why do they persecute? It's simply this, brothers and sisters. The children of the flesh persecute the children of the spirit because God has chosen the things that are nothing to bring to nothing the things that are. And the children of the Spirit are God's statement that the children of the flesh are nothing. And like Ishmael, the children of the flesh hate the fact that they are nothing, that they deserve nothing, and that God is gracious to people who don't deserve it. Can you imagine the resentment that Ishmael would have felt? I mean, he had been probably alive for about 13 or 14 years before Isaac was born. And all that time he's thinking, I'm going to be the inheritor of the blessing. And there's no way that this is going to change because Sarah's not going to have any kids. And then all of a sudden, Sarah gets a kid at 100, and that, that's the end of Ishmael's inheritance. He's no longer the heir to the promises of God. Well, he never was, but he thought he was. And that's the end. He became nothing, even though he should have had it. He became nothing for this funny child the child of God's grace. I'd like to just close this morning with verse 30 and 31, briefly. Verse 30 is not a command to the Galatians. He's not saying, kick those people out of your church. Though that might be necessary, that's not what this verse is saying. This is the word of God saying that God will not have 
any flesh glory in his presence. This is God saying, the child of the bondwoman will not inherit my blessing. This is the word of God. This is where Paul was going the whole time when he said, don't you hear the law? You guys want to be under the law? Don't you hear that God says, no one who's of the bondwoman is going to be blessed? He said that. That's God's declaration. Cast them out. And when you go to the law, you go to the bondwoman. You go to slavery. And God will not have anyone of the flesh glory in his presence. Paul is telling this to the Galatians so that they might hear and learn in fear. And we also today, brothers and sisters, need to hear this same thing. Would that we would hear it constantly in our hearts. That God will not have the child of the bondwoman to inherit the blessing. We do as Christians hear this now, which is why we've turned to Christ. But imagine this, or think about it. One day the entire world will hear this from God. When God comes to judge the world, and this whole all the religious systems of the world march up to the judgment seat to receive their blessings. And God says, and everyone will hear it and everyone will understand on that day. Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So Paul ends this section where he began. You want to be the children of Abraham? He had two sons, two different kinds of sons from two different wombs. Who's your mother? What's your alma mater? How have you aligned yourself with Hagar, the old covenant and the law? Or are you a child of Sarah, the new covenant and Christ through faith alone in Christ? If you are a Christian, you are, your mother is the Jerusalem above, you belong to that beautiful city because of Christ and Christ alone. And always remember, it's not because of anything that you have done. If you are a child of the new covenant, it means you have been born in the new covenant womb. You have been formed by it. You are characterized by it. You gain your status from the new covenant. You are a supernatural child of God through faith in Christ and righteousness through him and not through anything that you have done, and you are free. Be encouraged, Christians. You're free, and you're under no necessity and condemnation. But if you are not a Christian this morning, you may think that you're righteous, you may think that all is going to be well with you, and you're going to inherit the blessing. But if, you are, if your mother is not the Jerusalem above, if it is not the new covenant, then you are an Ishmaelite, one who will not inherit the blessing. You are a slave. You have to keep the law. You won't do it. You're under condemnation. So be sure your mother is right. This is what Paul is saying. Be sure your mother is right. Who are you trusting in? How are you a child of Abraham? Be nourished in the arms of the new covenant and rest Put your faith in Jesus and be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this amazing 
truth in Galatians chapter 4. Lord, we have so much to learn as Christians about these matters. I pray that you would help us all think about them, to think deeply, to be thoughtful as we read the Bible, and to be reflective, Lord. I pray that you would help us to understand this issue of the new Jerusalem above so that we could rejoice with Paul as well, so that we can be glad that we belong to the heavenly Jerusalem and understand what that means and why we are. And lastly, Lord, I pray, if there's anyone here that is not a Christian, I pray, Lord, that you would open their eyes to see their status and their situation and that you put a longing within their heart to come to know you and to be right with you and to be one of your children in your family. Thank you that it's so simple, by simple faith in Christ. Thank you that the new covenant isn't about what we do, but it's about what you do, Lord, and our faith in you. Thank you so much for Christ and his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins so that we could be saved. Help us never lose our wonder of that, Lord. And may we rejoice and be glad every day because of it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.